We've been really, you know, struggling a bit with with how do we repurpose the event because you know the content is good. Those that show up is really good, um, and so I've joked that you know we should call it the underwriting insurtech collaboration insurtech seminar insurtech. <laughs> Does that spell something out? I'm trying to work out. I don't know right now, no, no, but just you know, if we put it in there enough times, we get a buzz. Then you know maybe people can. Uh, you know, it's easy to justify the, exp- the travel expense of the boss or something. Hello, Matthew Grant here, partner at Instec London, and we're bringing you an extra special midweek episode of the Instec London podcast here. And this is my chat with Rob Garbraith, who is over in London recently. Rob, whose daytime job is head of innovation at workers' comp insurance company AF Group, is well known to followers of InsurTech. He was once described as the most interesting man in insurance, and earlier this year he released what has become a rather successful book, The End of Insurance as We Know It. We found we had a lot to talk about, lots of friends in common, and so this episode is a little bit longer than our usual 30 minutes, but we covered a lot of ground in our discussion. And of course, we are being supported this autumn by Insurance Insider, one of my favorite sources of information on the specialty insurance, reinsurance, uh, and wholesale markets from around the world. Rob, welcome to the Instec London podcast. Thank you, Matthew. It's great to be here. Now, most people, I, I start off and ask them uh, if they've done podcasts before, and a surprising number of people say no, but you've done so many. I think you've actually been a guest almost as many times as I've actually given podcasts. So I'm looking forward to learning some lessons from you about great interview technique. <laughs> okay, sounds great. Sounds great. And I'll correct you along the way if you don't do a good job. <laughs> you can correct my you can correct my spellings. Um, so this is great to have you here face to face. You're over in you're over in the UK. Uh, so first of all, what is it that's brought you over? So um, I've been asked now for a while from uh, friends that I've I've met kind of over social media and kind of shares passion for insure tech. You know, when are you coming to London? When are you coming to London? And the insurance post. Uh, recently held a technology summit down in Horsham uh, and asked me to come over and be the after-dinner speaker and they bought uh, books for all the attendees and so I figured since I was kind of come over here for that I might as well make a a week of it so um, arrived in London on Monday I'm going back uh, tomorrow which is Saturday back to the States and so um, yeah I've uh, instead of doing all the the touristy bits I've just been uh, catching up with folks face to face uh, in my time here in the UK. Good. Well, I'm going to come back and talk to you a little bit about the differences you've seen between the UK and the US. But I guess as we kick this off, uh, in addition to being the most interesting man in insurance, the profit and the last one is particularly intriguing, the WD-40 of insurance, you have also written a book called The End of Insurance. All those uh, names are, are things that other people <laughs> came up with, not me. A few of them I've been bemused by, and particularly the WD-40 of insurance. And I asked uh, my friend Patrick Callahan, how did you come up with that? He said, because you fix all manner of problems in the, the, the industry. But um, yeah, so... Um, you know, I spent over 20 years in the industry, all on the carrier side, primarily as an underwriter. And um, uh, the book was a, a bit of a personal project, and I, I, I didn't... Th- start out, I guess, to write a book, I was um, uh, just taking a lot of meetings and, and seeing a lot of interesting technologies. And it wasn't one particular technology or one particular company, but I would leave these meetings and I would say, uh, I just saw a glimpse of the future. That's what insurance is going to look like 10 years from now. It was a very neat feeling. And uh, so I was on holiday kind of uh, 2017 going into 2018 with the wife and kids. 
and I couldn't stop thinking about it. And, you know, what did people tell you if you can't stop thinking about something? They say, you know, write it down. After about two or three months, I had 25 pages single spaced of just these random kind of thoughts. So um, lo and behold, a year later, it's a 300 page book that's uh, been out on Amazon since February. Well, congratulations. And uh, I heard somebody describe it as it's not quite a book you can consume in one airplane flight. And there's nothing explained whether that was a cross Atlantic or a local one, but maybe there and back, you might be able to read it. That was my original stated goal. And I think I mentioned that early in the book that, oh, you should be able to read this on a plane ride. And uh, so one of the very first reviewers had a, a wonderful review, but she called me out on, <laughs> she said, there's no way that you could do this. I said, you know, maybe between here and Singapore, you could uh, get it done. And that was what last last year you released the book? Uh, it was February this year, okay. 2019. So uh, remarkable success. It sold over 2,000 copies in just over six months, uh, which is beyond my wildest expectations. You know, I was kind of hoping for 300,000 was kind of a stretch goal. And um, I didn't know this at the time, but after the book was released, a friend uh, told me that the average book, who's written a couple books himself, said the average book only sells 229 copies, right? So um, we've got J.K. Rowling, who uh, you know, sold millions of Harry Potters, and then of course decided to, to impersonate me, steal my name, Robert Galbraith, to, to you know author her non-Harry Potter books under. Um, so clearly, you know, she's at the top of the the, the food chain. But uh, yeah, many folks, it doesn't go beyond friends and family. So I'm glad that a a book about insurance and innovation and insurtech, clearly a niche audience has uh, um, been so well received around the world. Yeah, maybe a few of the people who bought your book thought they're actually buying a book written by uh, J.K. Rowling. But <laughs> probably, probably. So I, I, I tell people, uh, if you search Rob Galbraith on Google, you'll find myself along with two other gentlemen. One is a uh, pioneer in digital photography. Another one is kind of a country singer from the 70s. But if you search Robert Galbraith, nothing but jk rolling all over the page well hey look who's complaining and i think it's it's sold quite well both in the us and the uk despite despite bizarrely having a higher price tag in the uk in fact, even a higher number so when i last looked on amazon it was 35 pounds in the uk versus 30 dollars in the us so i was just wondering if maybe amazon's got their algorithm for currency exchange back to front but despite that you do still have readers in the uk I do, um, and uh, so the UK is actually the the um, second uh, highest selling market behind the the US, um, followed by Germany, and then um, it's actually sold in uh, twelve countries. And I think there's some countries I know people have a copy of the book that aren't even showing up in the Amazon stat. So by hook or by crook, they're getting it. So there's probably folks in almost twenty countries that uh, are floating around with a copy. So yeah, apologies on the sales price. I don't actually set that. That kind of goes to the publisher and Amazon. I don't know if that's a, a post Brexit exchange rate that they've factored in already or not but uh yeah apologies for the uh the steep cost well the other interesting geographical difference i noticed was that you had 21 reviews all of them excellent by the way in the u.s and only one in the uk which also i think probably reflects the slightly reserved nature of uh of the uk audience but actually i guess also is it is it slightly more biased towards what you're seeing in the u.s because the insurance and we'll talk a bit about what on earth insurtech actually means in a minute but it's, there's some things that are very different in the, the way the world operates in the U.S. versus the rest of the world, aren't there? It is, yeah. The book is uh, written from uh, a U.S. personal lines perspective um, for a couple of reasons. A, that's mostly my background. So even though I'm on the commercial side now in my current role um, as a director of innovation at AF Group, um, most of my years were spent at, at USAA, which uh, is a large uh, personal lines insurer that insures military members and their families. Um, so the A, that was you know, born out of my personal experience. Um, B, I felt that uh, even folks that um, 
or on the commercial line side of the U.S., everyone's a, a consumer of personal lines, and so it's kind of accessible to a, a wider range of audiences. At the time, I had thought about trying to um, uh, broaden it and address an international audience, but I, I felt that I was kind of going a little bit beyond my my expertise, and so I uh, felt that you know there's probably a lot of principles that certainly uh, uh, folks in other countries could um, apply and relate to their home market in a way that I certainly you know wouldn't pretend to be an expert. Um, but I am blown away actually by the success that it's had internationally. I um, I guess I never. Um, thought that it would have such a, a, a broad audience and a, a broad market. I've got folks um, as far away as uh, Nigeria. Um, I'm going to Brazil next month to give a talk and others um, that it would uh, resonate. So I, I think people um, haven't had as much trouble understanding, even though the U.S. market is different than their home market, um, a lot of the concepts and principles um, are translatable for sure. Well, I mean, you're very modest, but you are also very well known in the space. And uh, you know, I'm delighted you, you've given up part of your Friday evening to come in and talk to me. And one of the other things uh, you, you've involved with is insurance nerds. And I thought that's probably, uh, it's only for me, I wouldn't want to put this on you, but maybe we're insurance nerds because we're sitting here on a Friday afternoon. <laughs> we are. You can put me in that category too, Matthew. <laughs> talking, talking about insurance. But I just want to tell you a little bit. I gave you a bit of the story. You don't know the full story about how I found out you're in London. Uh, so I was talking to Pedro at 90, who are one of our big supporters and, uh, and sponsors. And he goes, we had Rob Galbraith in here this morning for a coffee. <laughs> and then the next day I was at the DevOps event, the workshop, and, and you know, I was prattling away about things. And, and this very sort of softly spoken, modest American person opposite started saying something very intelligent. I looked over and it's like, Rob Galbraith. So... Uh, <laughs> That's how we got together. So we should talk a bit about that because that was a really interesting event, wasn't it? Talking about tech debt, which I sort of knew vaguely about, but really interesting what we heard that morning. Yeah, that was great. So thank you, uh, Matthew and, and Instech London, for your tweet uh, letting me know. So uh, it kind of actually fit perfectly in my schedule. That was the the one plan, uh, part that uh, I hadn't really planned out for the week. So it was uh, a perfect... Uh, I did have... Uh, a bit of struggle, a struggle finding the Victorian bathhouse, which is a location, and um, it's a very kind of modest structure on the top. And this, and so I, um, I finally got to the the place, and it, it, I couldn't think it was quite right. And I ducked my head, and and there was a gentleman right on the inside. He said, "You've come to the right place. <laughs> you don't even know who I am or why I'm here." But he he clearly knew. I guess I had that look about me, the type of person that would be going at eight in the morning to a uh, insurance and technology uh, breakfast at uh, the Victorian bath house but um yeah uh very fascinating conversation on technical debt and, and the part that i thought was the most provoking um curious to get your thoughts was um should technical debt be reflected on the balance sheet of insurers and if it were to be reflected on the balance sheet of insurers would any remain solvent <laughs> now fortunately i get to ask the questions so okay. can you just describe for the audience what technical debt is because not everyone is going to understand it yeah, so this is actually a concept I don't talk about in the book because it was something that I, I learned about probably about a month or two after I um, had written the book, and so it'll definitely be in the, 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 the next version. So the idea of technical debt is uh, just as you might rack up dread on a credit card 
Um, at a certain point, um, you know, you, you, you've got to pay off maybe the, the, you know, a monthly allowance or whatnot. Uh, but you could certainly get to a tipping point where the amount of uh, debt that you've racked up in your credit card gets to the point where the minimum payments themselves become uh, very onerous. And then you're certainly not working it off, right? You're just paying the, 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 the interest, but you're really not working down any of the principal of that debt and becomes kind of overwhelming. Uh, the same idea is... Um, true for legacy technologies from the 1970s and 1980s is that over time, uh, this technology, while it may have been fully depreciated and the operating cost is actually relatively low, I, I think it was uh, the quote at the, the breakfast was, you know, it's just whatever it costs in electricity to keep the, 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 the machines actually functioning and operating. Um, but because there's no capital investment, it's been fully depreciated. It's actually understating the true cost of that technology. And so over time, you're building technical debt much as you would on a credit card to the point where um, you've got to dig out of that hole at some point. And to actually dig out of the technical debt hole, um, you actually need to be very focused, very mindful, just as it is if you have a, a very large credit card debt uh, to actually pay the whole thing off before you go insolvent, right? It actually takes a lot of discipline and a lot of work, um, a lot of kind of, you know, belt tightening, et cetera. Um, and it's very difficult for individuals to do that, such as the same for uh, companies. And you know, there's a, a lot of talk, at, uh, kind of debate at the, the breakfast of, is it even possible to pay off your technical debt to get to where you should be presently, right, in 2019 in terms of your technology and being up to date? Um, and then what does it take to actually invest into the future of where technology is going? Because as soon as you bring it up to present, well, of course, uh, if you don't keep up with it and don't invest in the future, then, you know, the technical debt problem starts over again. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was... It not a surprise, but it's just really helpful to hear it positioned in that way, which is, it's almost, people are now talking about this sort of smoldering platform rather than the burning platform. But it's, it's, but then the issue is, you know, I just describe it as it's never quite in the top 10, or it's number 11 in the top 10 risks that you, the board are concerned about. So it never quite gets the attention. You can always just push it another year longer. But, you know, what was very clear is actually the cost to the rest of the business, there are hidden costs and sort of frictional costs and competitive costs. Um, and we heard about that great example well, we probably shouldn't mention the insurance company, but it, you know, it took them 48 days before they paid out on uh, insurance for or funeral or funeral insurance. And, and the point was, you know, how long do you need to be able to prove that someone's died? You know, that was because they had so many processes in place that they had to be signed off. And once they figured out, yeah, effectively, how to get rid of their technical debt in that product, they could they could give a payout within hours rather than the, you know, almost two months. So um, that brings us on to, or I think it brings it back into a little bit of what you're doing. At AF, so can you just talk a little bit about what your uh, your sort of day-to-day job involves when you're not writing books and around the world you know, presenting when you're head of, head of innovation? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, so director of innovation at AF Group. Um, it's a relatively new position for me. I've started in uh, April, so I've been six months on the job. Um, I actually report to a gentleman by the name of Abel Travis, who has a, a podcast himself uh, called the Insurance Innovators Unscripted Podcast. So what we do at AF Group, we're primarily uh, what's known as a workers' compensation uh, insurer. Uh, That's 80% of our premium. That's similar to employers' liability here in the UK. Um, Monoline carrier, been around for over 110 years. A very unusual longevity in the the, the States. It's probably a young company here in the UK. Um, But 
we're getting a, a mandate, rightly so, by um, our board and our fantastic CEO, Lisa Corliss, who um, is just an, an amazing uh, individual, a, a, a tremendous leader uh, and very intelligent um, uh, business. Her, her father was in insurance and kind of taught her at a young age that so she's literally been her whole life in kind of insurance. And so a fantastic uh, leader that uh, is passionate about innovation and uh, not necessarily shrinking uh, the workers' compensation book, continuing to grow it, but then also diversifying. And so we want to get into more specialty type risks. Um, we'd love to be a, a top 50 uh, P&G carrier that is a, more in the, the specialty line space. And so Able was brought over um, to actually not only lead the innovation function, but to actually stand up uh, our product management function. We didn't have any product managers because we only had one product for a long time. And so his goal is to uh, have us release two to four new products each year. And the other thing that we want to do, in addition to top line growth through new products, is um, reduce loss and expenses, operational efficiency. So we're doing some interesting thing in the wearable space. Um, we've done a, a, a bit of a pilot with blockchain and other things. So, um, and the third thing that we really do on in the innovation team, in addition to kind of top line and bottom line, is uh, foster a culture of innovation. That's one of our four core uh, uh, cultural principles at AF Group. And so we do a lot of, um, we have an tech day, we bring in startups and kind of, you know, meet with some of the employees. We bring in our uh, in agents uh, that are on an innovation council once a year and pick their thoughts. Uh, we've got an idea pipeline. We have different challenges. We get ideas from all throughout the organization. So uh, it's a small team and, and very much kind of an enabling function uh, for the enterprise rather than, um, you know, this team innovates and then everybody else is just kind of business as usual. It's, it's really our mission to kind of, um, help to foster innovation throughout, but we're certainly enablers, not um, not the only innovators of the company by any means. So so when you're going into what sounds like a greenfield site, if you're moving into a new product area, I guess a couple of questions on that. So is it this, are you targeting the same clients to cross-sell from the workers' comp into new products in the in the specialty area? Not necessarily. So um, it can be, but not necessarily. We, we, we have a I'd say fairly open in terms of what some of the value props that um, I've seen come across my desk and what, and what we're thinking about. A, a lot of it, I guess I would characterize as opportunities that we think are being overlooked by the market um, for one reason or the other. Um, we're number seven in terms of the workers' compensation today, but many of the people above us are, are quite large companies that um, are, are household names in the States and, and probably well-known um, over here, Travelers, the Hartford, Chubb, et cetera. And so they offer a full range of commercial products. So we don't want to compete directly against them. We don't think that makes a lot of uh, sense. But where we see pockets of opportunity, uh, if we can be more nimble and we can go after some of these markets that um, either they... Um, you know, don't find an attractive opportunity not big enough for them or that they're uh, not able to get to the market quickly, uh, we think that can be our uh, advantage. And can you reveal any of the, the products you're, you're looking at? Are they, are they still under wraps? It's still under wraps for right now, but um, hopefully we'll be able to see kind of some uh, announcements. One I can actually mention um, because it's in market is um, uh, after 110 plus years, we actually entered... Um, uh, motor insurance for the first time last year. So we have uh, commercial trucking uh, through a brand called Fundamental Underwriters that we're offering on a non-standard basis. And so, you know, that's uh, been in kind of an interesting uh, pivot to somebody that's been, you know, mostly obviously on the liability, the casualty side of things. Well, that whole fleet insurance area people are starting to look at now as you start to see driverless cars and the transition from traditional motor to sort of more mass fleet offerings. Uh, you mentioned blockchain in there as well, so I can't let you let you get off without telling me a little bit more about 
yeah, have you actually found a POC for blockchain? Can you talk about it? And uh, is, it, is it being successful? Yeah, so um, I think blockchain is one of the most controversial technologies out there. Everyone has uh, an opinion. Um, I don't know how many of those opinions are actually informed opinions, including my own, by the way. So I, I did write a chapter on blockchain, and um, it's something I've, I've talked to many experts about, and I, I still don't just quite get it. Um, so we had a, a young woman uh, as an intern this summer uh, on my team. Her name is Alex. Um, just finished freshman year at university. Um, very, very bright uh, young woman. In fact, we had two interns. Uh, we had another one working on uh, optical character recognition uh, program. Uh, so, you know, both were fantastic. Uh, his name was Angelo. And so uh, when Alex came on board, she um, was part of the blockchain club at the University of Michigan. And um, so she had an interest in working on blockchain. So I said, Alex, you know, what I really need from you is um, I'd like to have some type of um, proof of concept, you know, how would this work, et cetera, kind of, you know, do just a kind of a, a, a quick use case for us. Um, not necessarily really anything that's going to drive business value, but just to kind of show us the fundamentals of, of, of how it work or could work. Um, but I said, Alex, the key question I have is, is this a $300,000 opportunity, a $3 million opportunity, a $30 million opportunity, or $300 million opportunity? I just need an order of magnitude because I really honestly don't know. And so if it's $300,000, that's probably not worth my time right now, right? And I can focus on other things of which most of what we're focused on. But if it's a $300 million opportunity, I want to know that because I needed to be devoting a whole lot more resources to it. Um, and so, you know, she did a wonderful job kind of, you know, mapping out really almost a, a, a strategy, a white paper for us as an organization um, to to pursue um, in terms of a, a blockchain strategy. Um, and so again, what was remarkable is this young woman is 19. She spent two months in the industry when I've spent 20 years in the industry. But because she, we, this is a key theme of the book, we live in a world of accelerating change. Um, and so if you think about it, right, over the course of 20 years, um, I've seen really the flat part of that exponential curve. And so it's very easy for me to project forward and say, well, 20 years from now is going to look the same as change has been over the last 20 years. And so I think about it in a much more linear term, um, even though her experience in the industry is much shorter than mine, it's on the more relevant part of the curve. So the slope or the steepness of the curve, you know, she is more quick to adopt some of this technology like blockchain than I am. So she's explained the difference between hyperledger and Ethereum between DLT, right, versus blockchain and, um, you know, just had a, a wealth of uh, insights um, in a way that really, frankly, nobody else in our organization, nobody in IT or anywhere else had that level of knowledge with this technology. Yeah, and DLT is distributed ledger. So we, yes, we, sorry, we distributed ledger. So now I told you, you know, I throw out these uh, acronyms so that I, I sound like I know what I'm talking about. So, so that actually was um, you know, part of the conversations that I had in London this week. So I met with the, the team at Blockshare uh, Monday afternoon to kind of learn a little bit about their uh, Blockshare uh, OS platform and what they're hoping to do with that. And then I met with uh, Waleed from InsureBlocks on uh, Wednesday, um, who's doing kind of a fantastic job really exploring the possibilities. So um, there are uh, true believers there are true detractors um and uh, you know still in quest i guess of uh you know where this is uh, going um I, I don't say i've talked to a lot of people i don't know that i uh, have formed a, a a solid opinion myself um, i do think the potential is huge so i do think it is worth absolutely kicking the tires um and so you know how it all plays out i i'm not sure but um i think um organizations uh, that are dismissive ignore blockchain at their peril. 
Yeah, and I think it's also, you know, what is blockchain and what is not blockchain? I think if you, you know, there's a bit of debate now with R3 and Corda, and, you know, I'm not not an expert to go and talk about that, but, you know, is that blockchain? Is it not? Um, I'm talking to them next week at the Intelligent Insurer Conference, so we'll find out a bit more then. But, but I think the essence of what you're saying is it's too early to call it. There's definitely something behind the technology that's valuable, but it's, it, it sounds like either you... <laughs> Either you don't know yet, or you know, and you're not telling us whether it's a uh, 300 million or 300 million plus opportunity or 300,000. You know, Matthew, one of the things I'll say though is, um, you know, the time that I wrote the book and it came out, there was a lot of um, a lot of hypotheses, a lot of theories, a lot of white papers, right? What I've seen since the book came out is, um, you know, I've seen the, the Aons and the Guy Carpenters, right? Kind of, you know, using blockchain to, 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 to partner with reinsurers. I've seen, you know, USA and State Farm, two of the largest personal lines carriers in the USA, they're going to start exchanging uh, claimant information because obviously their insureds, you know, run into each other all the time. And so they're going to start exchanging uh, claim information back and forth with each other in 2020 via blockchain. So you're seeing more and more name companies, real world applications, real use cases out there. Now, you know, how robust those use cases are, it's hard for me to, to go beyond the press release but um, you know again you're getting some some big names now with real use cases in this space just sort of generally on that technology I mean a lot is changing since you wrote that book in, in not necessarily in ways people would have expected meaning it's that isn't that curve isn't always a hockey stick up if you if you look at it and you're at the flat point it doesn't always go up sometimes it goes down goes away but what do you make of some of the funding we're seeing now coming in um, that seems to be more focused around MGAs. I mean, as we're talking, there's just the news come out recently that you know, Tokyo Marine Holdings acquired Pure for over $3 billion at a forward-looking multiple of of, uh, of 33. I mean, that's really a big number for an MGA, which a few years ago we thought was sort of the rather sort of quiet, dull side of insurance. And at the same time, we're not, we're not seeing uh, many large tech, certainly in tech in insurance, um, IPOs, there's some strategic acquisitions going on, but you know, what, what do you make of what's going on in that space, and, and to what extent do you feel that the funding that's coming in is justified by the uh, the products that are out there? Yeah, I, I find it fascinating. I actually was at a, um, a church tech event in uh, San Francisco last year, where I was on a panel with. Um, uh, a couple of venture capitals and, and one of them, uh, Chris Downer, who I respect greatly, was talking about the different valuations and mentioned that a, a tech company valuation was going to be very different from an MGA, which was even very different from a carrier. And, and part of the panel discussion was um, for startups to kind of say, you know, which should you position yourself as, a tech play, as an MGA? And, 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 and the um, the route that we were seeing was that a lot of tech firms were actually going the MGA route when they didn't necessarily have to be an MGA. I think there was some um, perception out there, right, that they all needed to, 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 to um, you know, set up shop as an MGA. And Chris's point actually was, you shouldn't do that unless your value proposition requires that you do that because as a tech firm, you're going to have a much higher valuation than it is an MGA. Well... That sounded like sound advice last year. <laughs> maybe, maybe not so much this year. The other interesting thing, you know, is on. Um, uh, actually, did a, in a panel interview with uh, Ambest TV with uh, you know our friend Adrian Jones was on there. But there was um, uh, the gentleman that had started Kin Insurance that was on there. Talked about going from MGA to full stack carrier, and so this was kind of the the nature of the panel was: is this a trend that we we see? Um, I had some conversations with folks. I, I you know. 
uh, probably not, you know, uh, intended for a public, but, you know, that are MGAs that were, uh, have grown considerably. Um, and they were talking about the challenge of finding enough paper because of the, the growth and managing uh, the different providers of, uh, of paper. At some point, I think, you know, they just wanted to kind of ditch all the carrier partners um, so that they could go full stack. So, you know, it, it kind of helps early on to achieve the growth as an MGA, but then as you scale, it actually becomes a bit of a, a spaghetti complicated mess. And so there's this kind of, you know, desire to say, well, at a certain point, maybe it does make sense to go full stack. So I don't know when I saw that in Tokyo Marine and Pure, you know, you kind of wonder, well, you know, is, is, is the intent that they're not going to be an MGA forever? Um, is there some tech stack, you know, we were, um, just uh, coming up from the conference of the insurance post, uh, policy expert, uh, which is a, a kind of a startup here in the UK, but it's been around for eight years or so. Um, they were talking about how they are uh, soon actually to be in the, the top 20 uh, um, household insurers. Uh, and so they work a lot with aggregators and others. And But they were talking about their tech stack. And so I kind of asked the question, well, you know, you're VC funded. What if somebody were to just buy you out just for your tech stack, didn't care about the customers or whatnot? And he said, well, you know, we're always looking for an exit. So I, I don't know. I, I think we're really mudding the waters between tech and MGA and care like it's it's almost about how you arrive at what you're doing and what is your secret sauce rather than I don't think anybody fits nicely into these buckets anymore that's part of who they are but not a, a robust enough definition to really make sense of some of the valuations to say whether they make sense or not I hope you got a uh, commission by the way with policy expert or negotiated deal that if they, someone <laughs> listens to this and they get some funding you get. <laughs> I, I'll happily take a you know half a point off uh, of that yeah absolutely but then that, that, that MGA one is interesting I mean uh, well Chris actually Chris Downer was on podcast number seven I think so so, uh, Chris, if you're listening, maybe you can, you can check in and, and tell us what you think today. But I suspect part of it is, yes, it's evaluations, but I think there also is a legitimate reason beyond that, which is it's kind of quite helpful to, to sort of, you know, what is it, eat your own dog food, to sort of prove the concept if you're building tech and you can actually go out and put in place some distribution and, and actually and learn from that. And uh, there are a few companies we know, uh, Avari's one, who actually were also at the, um, the workshop where they've got... Uh, technology for building MGA platforms but they also have an MGA themselves and they they learn from one and it feeds back into into the other but it is it is curious um, I guess as we speak also Hippo are, are one of those people that might be looking for more paper just now given that uh, Unicre Digital Partners has just has just pulled their uh, their paper from them and actually a quick plug for <laughs> quick plug for Insta because we do actually also help people find uh, find carriers as well for MGAs. And Rob, I threw out that comment about insurance nerds earlier on. I wasn't just being, <laughs> being rude about the two of us, but that's actually an organization that you're part of, but I've come across a little bit, but can you just talk a little bit more about what that actually is? Yeah, great question. So the insurance nerds is um, uh, a group of friends of mine, actually, that uh, they all have, you know, quote, unquote, real jobs in the industry, but they've uh, created a uh, website, insnerds.com, uh, that originally started as um, articles for young professionals in the insurance industry. So in the past, you know, there was kind of a dearth of content for them. There would be textbooks, exam guides, you know, interviews with the CEO, et cetera. But somebody that was zero to five years in the insurance industry, they might be working in a call center somewhere or whatnot um, to try to encourage them to say, hey, there's an actual career path for you here. It may not be a, a defined one. You may have to find your own way, but, you know, let's 
talk to you about various aspects of uh, the industry, whether it be claims or underwriting or pricing or you know marketing, distribution, reinsurance. The cat bonds was one of the early ones. I had an early article on blockchain. Um, so they started kind of uh, with these um, articles, kind of you know by young professionals for young professionals, and it's really expanded now to uh, being a, a full content provider. So they have uh, videos under a YouTube channel called the Insurance Nerdery. Um, they uh, my book is the third book that they've published. So they. Uh, uh, self-published one called Insuring Tomorrow about millennials uh, in the insurance industry. And then a um, uh, real good uh, friend and a, and a wonderful speaker and, and uh, uh, kind of blogger named Bill Wilson um, goes by uh, insurance uh, commentary or inscommentary.com. So he, I've uh, been in the industry 40 years, semi-retired. And I kind of say that with a wink because I think Bill's just as busy as he's ever been. But he wrote a book called When Words Collide about claims disputes. Uh, that the insurance nerds uh, published. And then uh, my book is the third that they've done. So um, yeah, highly encourage. They've got podcasts as well called Profiles and, and Risk that's out there. They have another one called The Attachment Point that's a little bit more. Profiles and Risk is kind of interviews with, with personalities. Uh, the Attachment Point's a little bit more kind of a weekly roundup of news. But um, a ton of content, insnerds.com. They're a wonderful organization and a great source, uh, particularly if you're uh, relatively new to the industry. Good, but mostly US-focused. It is, yes. But they do talk to a few folks um, internationally. They actually, um, Rahul Mother, who's a 21-year-old, he's at Accenture now, and he's uh, just uh, tweeting up a storm and all that. And I had the pleasure of having uh, lunch with Rahul this week. He's been a feature in our profiles. Ever. So they do occasionally reach out uh, across the pond to uh, talk to personalities over here in the UK. InsureTech, does it still have a relevance as a term or, or you know, have we moved on from that and should we retire the word and just use something else or just talk about technology and insurance? That is a great question. I uh, I actually rather like the term, and maybe that's a bit counter to, to where most people are today. Um, it is a bit hard to distinguish, but I think of it as somewhat distinguished kind of a, a, a you know new tech and new val- uh, new value propositions from old tech and, and older value propositions. And I was at a conference earlier this year, and you know the question was, is Guidewire insure tech or not, right? And it's like, I don't think of, Guidewire, even though they do enable many insure techs and whatnot, but because it's kind of just, you know, ecosystem policy administration, billing claims is kind of standard. Well, you know, um, maybe it was a proprietary mainframe system that you had before or something else, right? And now you kind of move to that. Um, I don't think of Duck Creek as being insure tech, but maybe they are, right? Certainly the cloud aspect of, of where they're going, I think that they've embraced the, the cloud sooner than, than some of the um, others have. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I think that there's some out there that, um, Yes, they're, they're technology and insurance, but I think of InsurTech I, more as that startup, right? So there's kind of enabling technology out there, um, but then there's kind of these um, new ways of thinking and doing things and value propositions that I find very intriguing. And so when I think about InsurTech, I think about um, you know companies like Flock and others, right? That is just, okay, this is a, a new exposure or a new way of covering things. It's kind of new thinking. That's the way I associate the term. And I guess, you know, everyone, it's obviously got a bit of a different definition. So um, I still think it has value because when you say you're in insure tech, um, I think of new ways of thinking. And I, I think, you know, I'll evaluate each one on its merits, of course, right? And I think some terrible ideas out there that I've heard, but, um, yeah, I think the term still has relevance. Although, even by your definition, uh, an insurtech is no longer news. So I guess Ed and the team better watch out because Flock have been well, around for a few years. So I, you might not be insurtech anymore. Uh, yeah, I, I will say, um, 
so I think there are insure techs that are 10 years old. I mean, I think there's some, so I, you know, probably the length of time is a bit arbitrary, but let's just call it the last decade. <laughs> well, we give, we give uh, companies less than two years old free membership of Instec London. So we've got a slightly tighter timeline on the startup side. But now I, I just think it is, it is, it's an important thing to talk about because language is important. And if people are talking about insure tech, you know, they mean something or they don't mean something. And when one of the major reinsurance brokers stands up at yeah, at a major event and says, we are InsurTech, then you know, should somebody be holding them accountable and saying, well, actually, you're not? Or do, you, do they say, well, actually, we are because we've just launched 10 new you know, bits of technology that actually are new and cutting edge and they could have been done independently. We just happen to you know, do them internally, but that should still be InsurTech. So in my mind, I, I wouldn't know that I would have the uh, the gumption to stand up and challenge them right on the spot. But in my mind, I I, I, I do dismiss a lot of that. I think everyone's trying to lump themselves in. And in fact, you know, I uh, worked um, uh, to put on an event every year. Uh, it's kind of a joint effort between the Casualty Actuary Society and the Chartered Property Casualty Underwriters. And we call it the Underwriting Collaboration Seminar. And um, unfortunately, with the plethora of events that have really uh, jumped up, you know, we've seen kind of declining uh, attendees. And so we've been really, you know, struggling a bit with, with how do we repurpose the event? Because, you know, the content is good. Those that show up is really good. Um, and so I've joked that, you know, we should call it the Underwriting InsureTech Collaboration InsureTech Seminar InsureTech. <laughs> Does that spell something out? I'm trying to work out. I don't know right now. No, no, but just you know, if we put it in there enough times, we're going to buzz. Then you know maybe people can. Uh, you know, it's easy to justify the, exp the travel expense of the boss or something. And, and just actually on that last one, uh, another thing that's always fascinating is how people acquire information. So you know, we're doing a podcast. You know, some of the people who, who kind of want to reach out to you don't listen to podcasts. So we're now converting these into articles. You know, how, how do you personally consume information? You've got a lot going on. You've got a day job. You're also writing a book. You're talking at conferences. Yeah. So, what's the most efficient way for you to to, to gather information? That's a great question. Um, I actually was asked this question um, recently by an old work colleague of mine, and so um, I told her that uh, you know social media is kind of my number one go-to right now. Um, you know, I, I was big uh, Twitter guy for a long time. I still I tell people Twitter is my first love, so I, I do check it. But, you know, more and more LinkedIn has become a very powerful mechanism. LinkedIn used to be just kind of my electronic Rolodex, right? So I don't have to keep track of all these business cards and addresses, whatever. If we're connected on LinkedIn, then if you change jobs or whatever, like I can always message you. I can always kind of find you on LinkedIn. And so that, I thought, was a already a compelling value proposition. But the social features that they've really added um, the robustness of some of the articles and the posts, um, that's now really become kind of my go-to. And so there's, there's voices that you trust out there. And so it's not necessarily, um, you know, an industry publication or whatnot, but there's kind of certain individuals. And I, you know, we see this with the influencer list and, and what's been kind of fascinating as a quick aside is, you know, all week there's been kind of, um, the, the influencers and in the people, many of the people I've met, I, I certainly considered influencers, um, whether they're recognized on the, the list or not. But there's been a lot of, you know, well, this list of rubbish or whatnot, and I don't care where my position is. I was, I was you know, talking to the Johnson Swift. He goes, I've been doing what I do at the Insurance Post for a long time. He goes, I'm, you know, up 20 spaces, down 20 spaces. I, I'm just writing articles and putting content. I'm not changing anything. I don't know, you know, how they, they derive these things. But, um, you know, I think the, 
the idea of the influencer list, regardless of the you know who should be on there or not. You know, everyone can have their own opinion, but um, the idea that there are recognized voices. Um, you know, I like the term thought leadership. I was talking with Nigel Walsh earlier this week from Deloitte, and, and he's not a big fan of that term. But I, I think of that term as I'm not looking for a particular title or a particular company or a particular publication. Right? There's certain voices that I kind of follow, and over time, you kind of you know, in your own, I guess, uh, mental algorithm, right? There's certain voices that rise to the top and certain ones, you know, a bit with a, a view of skepticism that they maybe have some interesting takes. And then there's other folks that use, oh, they're just, you know, full of themselves. I'm not going to listen to that. So that's um, a big source. I, I certainly do subscribe to, you know, kind of daily email lists and kind of, you know, quickly scan the news for things like the uh, the news on Tokyo Marine and Pure and others. Um, I, quite frankly, I find it very difficult to keep up um, uh, with everything. And I, I wish I had more time devoted uh, to keeping up. So it's, it's, it's a challenge. But, you know, over time, I think you do get being in the space, you do get a a decent filter of, you know, you can kind of quickly scan and ignore the 90 to 95% of it and pick out uh, interesting nuggets. So one that quickly, you know, caught my attention was a James River is a excess and surplus lines carry in the US, one of the very first ones uh, to backstop Uber. And I even talk about them in the book. And I just saw this week that they're actually uh, uh, non renewed or pulled out. Canceled. Yeah, they're going to pull out. So uh, their stock dropped 20% as they ditched their largest client. But um, I guess the losses were. Uh, too big. And I would have thought they could have got the price right at a certain point. You know, they talked about taking reserves up $60 million from 2016, 2017. That part didn't surprise me. What surprised me is that it's 2019 and they still feel like they, they can't get the price quite right. And uh, they're willing to uh, completely pull out of the account. So yeah. those are the type of items that, you know, I'll, um, a few things will catch my eye. I'm sure it's the same for you, I would imagine. Yeah, no, so stories. I mean, in that, and what's interesting in that one is the Progressive jumped in and they're going to take out the space. And, and there's companies like Insure out there who are you know, offering um, analytics and insurance. So, uh, yeah, understanding why they've pulled out is that because they just can't get the, the analytics right, or it's, I mean, the loss ratio is obviously not right. So, that's, you know, that's the fundamentals aren't working for them. Um, but yeah, I think this whole how you acquire information is interesting. I mean, LinkedIn. The risk of LinkedIn, I think, is they're starting to throw adverts out there that are just annoying, and I think they've got to watch out that they don't. Twitter, Twitter is tricky because you just get a bunch of random tweets from people um, that it's got nothing to do with what you want to read or I want to read, and so you've got to filter through that. LinkedIn, it seems to be the adverts are getting in the way now. But I think what's interesting is seeing not just on the social media uh, sort of influencer list, but also the senior decision makers that insurance companies who are starting to either write write posts on there or someone's doing it for them but you know i know quite a few people who i would never would have expected to go on linkedin and start to see them putting putting material on that it does feel like um their voice so i think yeah the challenge is always how do you how do you stand up you've got you've got almost ten thousand followers on uh, on linkedin so uh, and you've got more than me rob so you're doing something right <laughs> well, the, what i tell people is, is um uh almost everybody is trying to sell you something right I'm just trying to sell you a book that's 35 pounds, so maybe a bit overpriced, right? But it's just that it's it, 35 quid at the end of the day really isn't that much to invest versus the thousands of dollars that many other people want you to spend. So, um, you know, I, I think people have um, view me as a, a you know, I, I, I hate to use the term unbiased, right, source because I certainly have my own preconceptions and, and biases and whatnot. But you know, um, I'm not trying to. I don't have any. Uh, uh, you know, alternative motives or, or nefarious things. I'm going to just call it as I see it. No, that's great. And actually, you know, here's a quick plug for you. One of the quotes on Amazon is, 
one of the best insurance books I've ever read. I, I suspect that's not, you know, not, I mean, it's done a great job writing the book, but it's not that tough to be amongst the good insurance book. But, well, you know, well done. <laughs> no, I agree, yeah. And then the other one, which we didn't talk about, so, you know, reason people to go and buy the book is Seven Fatal Flaws of P Insurance, PC Insurance and the Opportunities. So I, I now need to go and buy this book. It is cheaper on Kindle, actually. It's 20 pounds on Kindle. Um, well, Rob, is anything else we should yeah, talk about? Anything you've got coming out that you want to uh, share with share with our audience? Yeah, no, I appreciate the uh, the opportunity to be on, Matthew. So great to connect in person. So um, just a couple of uh, items. Uh, the book is actually now, um, as of this month, eligible for Kindle Unlimited. So for those that um, are members of the Kindle Unlimited, which I don't know what the prices here. I know in the U.S. it's uh, $9.99 per month. So I don't know if uh, we still have the same one-to-one exchange rate on, on Amazon there uh, or, or what the price is here in the U.K. But if you're eligible for the Amazon Unlimited, you can read the book for free because it's now eligible for that program, which is great. Um, we have an audiobook version that is coming out hopefully next month. I have a young woman uh, that is uh, recording it. Uh, she's been voice trained working with a professional recording studio doing that. So I'm um, very excited because that's the number one question I get is, you know, is this on audiobook format? And I think it will reach, um, you know, hopefully some of the executive audiences or whatnot that may not have the time to um, sit down for the 300 pages or, or aren't able to finish it in their, uh, you know, eight-hour transatlantic uh, plane ride. Um, and then, you know, folks can uh, find more about the book at endofinsurance.com. So I'm usually posting podcasts, videos, other um, kind of supplemental content out there. Um, you know, read other reviews that are not posted on Amazon that are out there as well. Um, and then I um, always enjoy connecting with people on LinkedIn. I get lots of messages. I'm not always able to respond to every single one that, that I get, but um, I do try to get to as many as I can. And uh, I enjoy hearing uh, feedback and uh, interacting with folks in the space. Well, Rob, it's been great to cover your time. You've had a very busy week. Um, thank you very much for uh, dedicating the end of it to our discussion. I really enjoyed it. Absolutely. Thanks, Matthew. Uh, as you can probably tell, we had a lot of fun recording that. Now, if this is the first time you've come across Instech London, then thank you for checking us out. We are one of the most active communities of people in insurance and technology, looking at new ways to improve decision-making, service customers, improve efficiency, and just generally find new ways to cover emerging risks. We bring together insurers and technology companies, and we run monthly evening events in London, most of which are released as edited highlights in this podcast series. We also provide a weekly newsletter in which we give our views on what is happening in recent times and also providing information on our forthcoming events. We're supported by many of the major insurers and the fast-growing technology companies as well as some companies that have been around for many years but maybe are less well-known. Don't be put off by the name. Over 30% of our listeners are from outside of the UK uh, and London is one of the major insurance centres for global risk. Much of what we talk about is relevant wherever you are. So check us out at www.instec.london and if you want to contact me directly, I'm on LinkedIn or drop me an email, matthew at instec.london.